You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. I mean, the sun is shining. All is right in the world. You know, we have a few Alabama fans uh, not in church today. I don't know. I don't know where they went. Funniest thing, uh, well, we will pray for them today as we get out our Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua. Uh, I've loved this study. I know the Lord is doing a lot in me. I hope he is in you as well. Uh, So we said already, you know, Joshua, it's all about how we walk in what God has already prepared for us. So he says, every place your foot treads, I've already given you. And so I want you to trust me. I want you to consecrate yourself to me. I want you to obey my word and my voice. But last week took a surprising turn, didn't it? We went from their greatest success, Jericho, the city that cannot be conquered. And they conquered it by walking and turning left and shouting. That's all they did. And we went from that to failure, to defeat. In chapter 7, we saw the sin at I, where instead of trusting God with everything, they took some of the stuff for themselves. And because of that, they lost the battle. And this makes no sense. So if Jericho was this great, mighty fortress, y'all, I was a a small, weakly fortified little town. And so it'd be kind of like defeating the Kansas City Chiefs, and then you lose the White House Junior High. No offense to White House Junior High. It's a great junior high. But it's not the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Isn't that like life, though? Isn't that that how it works, that often our greatest failures come right after our greatest successes? The text tells us why they lost. They lost really for two reasons. Number one, self-confidence. So even going into the battle, they they didn't send very many of their their soldiers to fight. They thought, this is going to be easy, no problem, we got this. Did you see what we did at Jericho? We're pretty great at this. And that self-confidence, it leads to a lack of dependence. And so before the battle, God's voice is ominously absent leading up to the battle of Ai. And that's way different than the rest of the book. So far, God's voice has been uh, leading them, instructing them with Jericho, with crossing the river. And so every other time, God's word has led them. But at I, they're just simply relying on their own plans. The second thing they did was they identified the wrong enemy. They came to find out in chapter 7 that the real enemy, it doesn't lack behind some fortress somewhere. They carried it with them into the promised land. It's that same enemy that plagued them in the wilderness, and they brought it there with them. They found out their real enemy is what the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is what will really destroy them in the promised land. You know, you may have heard of Alexander the Great. When that's your name, you must be pretty great. And he was. He was impressive. In fact, uh, by the age of 30, he had created one of the largest empires in history. He had conquered most of the known world. His empire stretched from Greece all the way to northern India. And he was undefeated in battle. He's widely considered one of history's greatest and most successful military commanders. But Alexander the Great, it turns out, wasn't so great in some ways. He actually died very young. He died at the age of 32 in Babylon. And you know what got him? You know what he died of? Not all those wars, not all those battles. He actually died from alcoholic liver disease, from his decadent lifestyle. His own appetites 
killed him. So he, he could conquer armies, but he couldn't conquer his own flesh. And so the flesh, men and women, is the part of us that loves sin. We saw this in Achan. So Achan, he, they got in the promised land. He saw some of the riches. And, and Jeff Bice last week, he, he summed it up perfectly for us. He said, you know, he saw it, he wanted it, and he took it. And our flesh is the parts of us, the part inside of us, that wants what God doesn't want for us. And so he lost that stewardship, that consecration mentality that we've seen throughout the book that says it's all from him and it's all for him. And instead, he, of consecrating all things to God, he took some for himself. And he says, this part's for me. And this is all too familiar cycle. This cycle throughout, it, it starts from the moment Adam and Eve sin. And we've seen it, all, we'll see it all throughout the Old Testament. We've seen it in Joshua over and over again. Here's how the cycle goes. You have sin. You have judgment for sin. But there's, then there's repentance. There's an opportunity to repent, which is followed by obedience. And after obedience comes blessing, the blessings from God. But you know what comes after that blessing? We go right back to sin. And it repeats and repeats and repeats. And tell me that's not how life works. Tell me that doesn't sound familiar. This is like reading my diary right here. Once our crisis is over and then we experience blessings from God, our flesh rises up and it says, you know what? I'm actually pretty great. I don't know if you saw that back there. I actually obeyed. Do you see that? So I deserve some things, you know? And then we see some of the silver and the gold and the world, things the world has to offer. And we think, man, that would be awesome to have. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. And then like the old song, we take the money and run. We say, hey, thanks for all that help back there, God. But I'm, I'm going to follow my flesh right now. And we go right back to sin. Chapter 7 was saying, listen, in your walk with God, you better have a plan for how to deal with the flesh. Because you've carried, you carry inside of you your own worst enemy. Chapter 8, that we're going to look back today, we're going to go back to I. And so chapter 8 is all about after we fail, how do we get back on track? Can we get back on track? In your walk with God, men and women, at some point, you're going to experience failure. Your faith is going to stagger. Your flesh will raise its ugly head. Then what? What happens after we opt out of God's way and do things our way? Well, this is what we do. This is our big idea for today that we're going to see in chapter 8. Trust God more than yourself. In those moments, you have to trust God more than yourself. So let's pick up Joshua 8. We'll read the first eight verses and talk about them a little bit. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hands the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to I, And Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all you remain ready. And I, and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. 
for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire, and you, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Well, right off the bat, men and women, we find out after this failure at I, God remains faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. First of all, we see God speaking. And we see God speaking to Joshua just like he did from the very beginning, just like he did before the sin. So the fact that God is speaking, that's a big deal. We're supposed to see that and say, yes, God hasn't abandoned them. Almost every chapter, God has spoken and instructed them. Chapter 7 was the exception. And we're not sure what's going to happen next. And we find out God is speaking to them again. And perhaps just as importantly, Joshua is listening. We see that he is going to trust God. He's going to follow God's word. He's going to move forward according to his plan. See, it seems they've learned a lesson is what the text is telling us. They have learned, hey, we need to trust God's plans more than we trust our own plans. And then the first thing he tells Joshua, do not be afraid. We've heard that before. In fact, that was the first thing God said to Joshua in chapter 1. In fact, good activity this week. Go read Joshua chapter 1 and what God says to Joshua there. And then go read and compare it with what he says in chapter 8. He says, don't be afraid. Now, God's a lot better than me. He's, he's a lot less petty than me. You know, God could have taken the opportunity to say, you know, shame Joshua. Recount his failures. Remind him of his failures. Threaten him. Hey, if this happens again, don't you let this happen again. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, he reminds of the first thing he told him. Do not be afraid. God hasn't changed, men and women. He hasn't. And do you remember why God told Joshua not to be afraid back in chapter 1? It was because of his presence. He said, there's one reason you can be of good courage, because I'm with you. And it seems that is still the case. God's presence is still with Joshua. And so he tells him, arise, get up. It's the same instructions again you'll see in chapter 1. The plan is moving forward. My promise remains. He says, see, I have given you. It's the same language from chapter 6 with Jericho. I have given you this land. God is saying, you may have wavered, but I haven't. You cannot trust yourself to be perfect, but you can trust me to be faithful with all of my promises. And then, did you see what he told him in verse 2? He says, you can keep the spoil and the livestock when you win the victory. Man, that floored me this week. I mean, what a gracious and generous God. Because I would be tempted to say, well, I was going to give you some of that, but after this whole episode, forget it. You've got to learn your lesson here. Think about this. In the midst of such a generous, gracious, faithful God, doesn't the sin of Achan look so foolish now from chapter 7? Where he went and took in disobedience for himself what God intended to bless him with all along. It turns out if Achan would have just waited and trusted God would have blessed him. But this is the way our flesh works every time. Our flesh appeals to us to convince us God's holding out on us. Your flesh practices serpent theology. Remember the serpent in the garden of Adam and Eve? How did, how, how, in Eden, how did he get them to eat? Well, he convinced them God's holding out on you. 
Yeah, he'll, he'll let you eat all these other trees, but he doesn't want you to eat that tree because he's cheating you. He's holding back on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. God is stingy. And he convinced him of that. Men and women, we practice the same serpent theology every time we say, you know what? I, want, I know God wants me to do that, but I actually think this is going to give me more rest or more comfort or more joy or more blessing. And our flesh cons us into trusting ourselves more than we trust God. But we find out in verse 2, God, God intended all along to bless them and to provide for them. And this is why we must trust God more than we trust ourselves. But still, I got I to gotta admit, I found myself asking this week, you know, but God, if this is what you intended to do, why wait? I mean, wh why does God make, it de make them dedicate it all to him first and then say, okay, well, then I'll give you some of it? And why is he so mad at this guy for doing something that God intended to do anyway? He's got, what is it, God playing games? He's playing mind games on him? What's going on? Well, here's what I think is going on. Men and women, God wants to bless you, but he doesn't want you to love the blessing more than you love him. And so you'll see this principle all throughout Scripture. We see it in the Battle of Jericho in chapter 6. The principle of the first fruits. He, God says this in Jericho. He says, okay, in the first victory, it all belongs to me. Consecrate it all to me. But in subsequent victories, I'm going to entrust some of it to you. Now, why does God do it that way? Why does he do it in that order? Because, men and women, first fruit kills the flesh. Trusting God suffocates the flesh. It can't survive it. And so God knows, listen, if you learn to trust me first, then I can give you the stuff and you'll use it the way I intended. But if I give you the stuff first, your flesh will use that stuff to actually lead you away from me. You'll get that blessing and you'll return right back into that beginning of that cycle, right back into sin. So that's how it works in our lives. For example, so sometimes God has to teach us to be generous before he blesses us with lots of resources. Because our tendency would be to take those blessings, blessings and trust ourselves with them. But he wants you to trust him more than you trust yourself. Dale Carnegie was one of the richest men that ever lived. And he was also one of the most generous men that ever lived. He, in his lifetime, gave away over $350 million. And y'all, that was a long time ago. That was a lot of money. It's still a lot of money today. And one time they asked him, how did you get to be so generous? Expecting him to say, well, when I got all this money that I didn't know what to do with. That's how I got to be generous. That's not what he said. He said, I learned it with my first dollar. He said, I'm convinced if I had not given away that first dollar, I wouldn't have given away any dollars. That's how it always works. And it's not just money. It's not just stuff. I mean, sometimes God has to confuse us before he gives you all the answers. Because, listen, if, if we got all the information first, our tendency would be to trust ourselves with it and think that we know best. But God wants you to trust him more than you trust yourself. And so he, get, he asks for the first fruits because he knows. Listen, if you'll trust me with the first fruits, you will also trust me with the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, all the fruits that come after that. Because by doing that, you have fought the battle against your real enemy, against the flesh. So listen, men and women, this morning, if you are waiting for some circumstances to change before you can trust God enough with your life to do what he wants you to do with your life, 
You're going to be waiting forever. Now, now is the time to trust God more than you trust yourself. He is good. He is generous. He is working for your good. So now is the time to trust him. And he proves it. So start in verse 3 through 9. God again proves that he is trustworthy. He gives them the battle plan, the instructions for battle. And y'all, the way this story is told, the way it unfolds brings all glory to God. It declares that he is completely in control of what happens here. He plans this brilliant ambush. The text is clear. It's all God's idea. He's leading them. The plan is, you know, first group is going to go and is going to hide on the opposite side of the city, out of view. Then the second group is going to go, attack, you know, and then they're going to fake the retreat. And I is going to think, just like last time, they're retreating. Let's finish them off. Let's finish them off for good now. Let's go get them and wipe them out so they'll pursue. Then that first group's going to come out and attack from the other side, and I is going to be caught in the middle, caught in the middle of an ambush. And we find out, verse 11 through 29, this faithful, trustworthy God leads them into a victory they can never accomplish on their own. It plays out just like God said it would. Israel attacks, you know, and then they retreat, run away, run away. And then it says, every man in the city of Ai pursued them. They say, we got them. Let's go get them. And just then the second group comes from behind them and captures the now empty and defenseless city, sets it on fire. And so the text says the men of Ai, as they, they think they're sprinting into success and victory, they look back and they see the smoke of their city, it says, rise to heaven. And then the attack force that was running whips around. They change from retreating to attacking. And I realizes they have nowhere to turn. They're stuck in the middle of two armies of judgment. They're in the middle of an ambush. And verse 22 says, none escape. It's complete victory. It plays out just like God said it would. And y'all, this is amazing because war is notoriously unpredictable. There's an old saying that says, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Well, that's true for man. That's not true for God. There's no fog of war with God. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he wants you to know you can trust him. You can trust him enough to do it his way, not your way. That's the way to victory. And so this city of Ai, it goes from a place of sin and judgment to a place of great victory for God's people. But the chapter isn't over yet. It doesn't end with the battle. In fact, the most important part of the chapter is still to come. You can think of it this way. Verse 1 through 29, they all tell us what happened. It, it kind of recounts the facts. But verse 30 through 35 tell us what it means. Tells us the why. And here's what it means. If you can trust God to defeat the external enemy, you can trust him to defeat the internal enemy of the flesh. How do you do that? By living your whole life according to his word. Let's pick it back up in verse 30. He says, at the time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings in the, to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people, Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark, before the Levitical priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, 
the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So suddenly in verse 30, we get a scene change. We're whisked away to a new location. And the place they are is very, very significant. They're in an area called Shechem. It's the geographic center of Israel. This is the place where God first spoke to Abram, Abram in Genesis 12. This is where Jacob's well is. So when Jacob, he came here when he returned from his long exile and he dug his well. And to this day, you can go there and see Jacob's well. And this is a repeat of a ceremony that Moses led the people in when they first ratified the covenant back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. So you have a, the text is screaming at us. This is important. We've gone out of our way a long way to get here. In fact, this is more important than the battle. They go through the ceremony. So there's two mountains here, Ebal and Gerizim, and there's a little valley in between, and it creates a natural amphitheater. So the tribes were divided in two, six at one mountain, six at the other, and they could actually hear each other speak in between them because of the geography. We're told Joshua wrote the whole law, the whole thing. Then the climax of the ceremony came when Joshua reads the whole law with all of Israel gathered there together. Now, part of the covenant is blessing for obedience. Part is cursing for disobedience. And we get a more detailed account in Deuteronomy. We're told that on those mountains, that half, the half on Mount Ebal actually shouted the curses of the covenant. The half on Mount Gerizim actually shouted the blessings of the covenant. So you can imagine, there you are in the middle of this valley, and on one side you're hearing cursing, cursing, cursing. On the other side you're hearing blessing, blessing, blessing. Think about Israel right now. In the past two chapters, they've just experienced both. They've experienced cursing, then blessing at the same place, at I. The first time they didn't trust God enough to obey, so the curse came. The second time they did trust. They did exactly what he said, and blessing followed. And now they stand in the middle of these two options being shouted at them. I want you to understand what great care they took with God's word in the ceremony. So, First of all, they're walking a long way. The distance from where they were from I to here is about 25 to 30 miles. It says he wrote the whole law from scratch. There's no computers. There's no typewriters. There's not even a pencil. Okay, probably what they did was get stones and put mortar on the stones and write it into the mortar. Then he read the entirety of the law. You think you've been in a long Bible study, okay? This would have been a long Bible study. And then the text, it points out everyone was there. The sojourner, the native, the little ones. Because all the people of God must give all of their obedience to all the word of God. That's the meaning of this whole ceremony. I like the way Dale Ralph Davis summed, summed it up. Here's what God's trying to teach them. Heeding God's word is more crucial than fighting God's war. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Heeding God's word is more crucial than fighting God's war. Israel's success did not primarily consist of knocking off Canaanites, but in everyone trusting God enough to submit their whole lives to his word. The whole thing rides on that. God is saying, listen, the way you win the war against the flesh is to trust what I tell you more than what your own flesh tells you. 
You trust that blessing comes from obedience. Even though what the flesh tells you may make perfect sense to you, it may feel so right, you trust me when I tell you only curses lay on that mountain. To trust God is to live according to his word. It is to remain on the mount of blessing instead of to venture on the mount of cursing. And so the question for you and for me is, which mountain will you choose? Will you choose the mountain of blessing or the mountain of cursing? Trusting God or trusting your own flesh? You know, if I'm honest, and I think if we're all honest, you know what we're going to try to choose? Both. Both, right? This is me. This is Israel throughout the story. Sometimes we trust God enough to follow him. Other times we trust our flesh and we want to go our own way and trust ourselves. And so we just follow that, that same cycle we find throughout the Bible. Sometimes choosing obedience, sometimes choosing disobedience, wavering between two options stuck right there in the middle. You know, I think, I think God is trying to paint us a picture here of these two events. So you got Israel standing in the middle, wavering between blessing and cursing. You remember I, the armies of I, they were caught in the middle of an ambush, in the middle of judgment. I think God is saying, when you waver in the middle, you stand in the middle of judgment. And the flesh will deceive you the whole way. Think about those men of I. As they sprinted out of their, their city, they are convinced that they are sprinting towards success. But they weren't. It was a lie. They were actually sprinting towards their own judgment. And that's exactly how our flesh works. It will make you think you are heading to the mountain of blessing when you're actually heading to the mountain of cursing. So we started off by asking, you know, when we don't trust him in this walk with the Lord, when we go our own way, what happens next? And the law says cursing happens next. You know, not everyone was killed and I immediately. In fact, the text goes out of its way to describe in, in great detail, in gory detail, what they did with the king. And listen, it's, it's very gruesome. They kill him, and then they hang his body on a tree as a display. And remember what we said, a lot of this in the book of Joshua, it is not nice, it is not pleasant, but it is just. God is completely righteous, holy, and just, and he will put an end to all evil and all injustice in the world. And actually in doing this, they were following the law. They were following Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. It says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now understand what it's saying here. It, he's not, it's not saying that he's cursed because he's hanging on a tree. He's saying he's hanging on a tree because he's cursed. Because he chose disobedience. Because he chose the wrong mountain. And so what they're doing is they're turning in that king into a billboard of judgment. He is a reminder for everyone else there. You are like this king. This is where evil is leading. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you don't do something about your sin and your disobedience, judgment is coming. You're under a curse. So the question is, if we've all chosen disobedience and we are under a curse, how do we get to that mountain of blessing? Can we get to the mountain of blessing? You know, we've said every week, the book of Joshua is saturated in Jesus. 
And he shows up in lots of expected places. He shows up in Joshua over and over. Joshua is meant to point us straight to Jesus. He showed up in this amazing, angelic commander of the Lord. He's in this chapter too, but in the last place anyone would expect him to be. He's not the victor. He's not some angelic being. He appears as the king of I, who was cursed. In closing, I want us to look real quick at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, 10 through 13, it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by faith. And so what Paul is saying here is all who trust themselves to follow the law will end up with a curse. Because that internal enemy of the flesh will stand in your way. So listen, if you stand in that valley hearing blessings and cursings, and you think you're going to choose blessings every time, you're going to bat a thousand, listen, you are fooling yourself. You are actually sprinting toward judgment. So Paul says there's another way. And it's actually the only way to get to blessing. You have to trust God more than you trust yourself. You cannot get to the mountain of blessing by trusting yourself to keep the law. But you can be made right by God through faith, by trusting him. But right then, any good lawyer would say, wait, 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 wait. You can't do that. You're guilty. You broke the law. You earned the curse. So we get verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's how, men and women. Jesus became the curse for us. He became the king of I, who, who was the billboard of judgment, who was under the curse. Jesus says, I will become the king of I for you. I'll take the curse. I'll stand between that ambush of judgment. And because I took it, you're free from it. You're free. There's only one mountain left for you, the mountain of blessing. Now, this place, Shechem, it also appears in the New Testament. It is where Jesus went out of his way to meet the Samaritan woman at the well. See, by Jesus' day, by then, the, the Jews, they wouldn't go there because the Samaritans, they'd set up an alternate temple from the one in Jerusalem. They'd set it up on Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews would go around. They, they thought if they went through there, they'd get cooties. So they avoided it. But Jesus said, I have to go there. I have to invade Samaria. The, to the, go to the one who's the farthest from me. I have to redeem someone from the curse of the law. And notice the reversal. Instead of rushing into enemy territory as an instrument of judgment like the armies of Israel, now Jesus is rushing into enemy territory as an instrument of grace. Men and women, when you are tempted to trust yourself and your flesh more than God, preach the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself you can trust the one who became the curse for you. You can trust the one who found you and who redeemed you. You can trust the one who wants a relationship with you more than he wants to just give you some stuff. And trust him enough to obey his word. We're going to do our so what today. And so I'm going to ask Adam to come up. Give everyone just a, a minute or two minutes to do some business with God. 
How does God's word apply to you today? Hey, maybe this is your second chance at I. What have you been taking for yourself that you need to trust him to provide? Or maybe there's some way you've been doing things your own way instead of his way. What is that? You know what? Or maybe you are deeply aware of your own failures. And you need to remember that Jesus took the curse from you. Or maybe, just maybe you've been trying your whole life to be a pretty good person. And instead you need to live by faith. And this morning, if you want to put your faith in Christ today, here's what I want you to do. Just tell him in this moment, tell him, I trust you to get me to that mountain of blessing. And then tell us, we'd love to know that too. And then you can sign up for baptism and join us then. It'll be great. Let's all take a minute and ask God how he'd like us to apply his word today. Let's pray together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.